Hi, I'm Tristan Miller, and this is Positive and Negative, a podcast about the intersectionality between mental health and the arts. Today on the program, I speak with educator, content creator, and actor Katie Osborne. Here she is talking about how freeing getting a diagnosis can be. It's, it's a new way to understand yourself. And you don't have to change who you are as a person. You don't have to stop liking Shakespeare. You don't have to stop liking Star Wars. You can, you can still be that person. But what a diagnosis gives you is the opportunity to accept yourself wholly for who you are. And to understand that sometimes the struggles that you've been having and the, and the issues that you've been dealing with aren't your fault. They aren't because you're lazy. They aren't because you're not trying hard enough. They're not because you're secretly not attracted to your husband. It's because you have ADHD and it's a part of it. And so learning to accept that and learning to forgive yourself and stop punishing yourself for when you can't do stuff. Like that is, that is one of the most powerful things I think the newly diagnosed can do is just forgive yourself and go forward from here with a more fully realized understanding of who you are. Our theme song is by Billy Conahan. It is To Be or Not off the album Leaping with Intent to Fly, available on Bandcamp, Spotify, and wherever you get fine music these days. You can support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash Tristan J. Miller. There you can get access to uncut versions of the interviews on this program. I hope you enjoy listening to Katie as much as I enjoyed speaking with her. She is an absolute delight. Check out all her content at Katieosaurus on the various social media platforms. All right, let's get into it. Well, thank you so much for being on, Katie. Um, so my first question is, and if please correct me if I'm wrong, you worked at a Shakespeare company in Winona, Minnesota, is that correct? <laughs> of, of many Shakespeare festivals that I've worked for. Uh, I worked at the Great River Shakespeare Festival in Winona, and then after that I worked at the American Shakespeare Center in uh, Stanton, Virginia, the Blackfriars uh, Playhouse, uh, and then I was the entertainment director of the Georgia Renaissance Festival, so oh. my career is storied and just weird. <laughs> yeah. The reason I ask is my that's where my folks live uh, oh, right cool. now. Oh, cool. Yeah, are you are originally from that area, or where are you from? I'm not. I grew up in the Midwest, uh, in okay. uh, which I guess Monona is the Midwest, but I grew up in the Quad Cities. Um, but now I'm like, I wonder if I know your parents. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, they moved there a couple of years ago. I think it oh, okay. was after your time. Um, what, so I've obviously heard of the Twin Cities. What are the Quad Cities? Uh, well, the Quad Excuse. Cities are twice as nice as the Twin Cities. Um, it oh, says it right on the Ray Gun t-shirt, um, because <laughs> if you're cool, you have the Ray Gun t-shirt. Uh, but no, actually the Quad Cities is a, it's a, it's, it's actually five cities. There's, it's like a whole thing. Google it. It's weird. Uh, but it's it's where the Mississippi River is a really short distance between Iowa and Illinois. Okay. And so there's like three cities on the Illinois side and two cities on the Iowa side. Depending on who you ask, there's a great debate as to which of the five quad cities are actually considered quad cities. <laughs> it's a whole thing. We have our own style of pizza. We ha- It's just, it's like a whole thing. Can I don't you, even... Midwesterners are so good at... 
It's true. There's an entire song at the beginning of The Music Man uh, discusses this. It's it's pretty fun. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, What sort of work were you doing for all these festivals? So at the, well, so I started off um, as sort of a general all-purpose intern at the uh, Great River Shakespeare Festival in Winona. Um, And then I went to grad school for Shakespeare. I have two master's degrees in Shakespeare. Um, And so then uh, at that point, I was working at the American Shakespeare Center as uh, uh, the the ASM. uh, uh, Oh, my God, I can't talk today. The uh, assistant stage manager. Um, But then I was also um, part of like sort of the ensemble. I was like the swing understudy. So I was like understudying everybody's role in the company, which was rad. It was so much fun. Um, but yeah, I've done, uh, I was, I was a Shakespeare actor for almost like just full time about 10 years before all of this other stuff happened on TikTok and everything. So it's been a a very strange and wild ride and a very like sharp turn into something sort of completely different, but also like kind of exactly the same in a lot of ways. It's really weird. Uh, That is specifically, I would imagine going from something, you know, pardon me, going from something kind of archaic like Shakespeare or old, shall we say. Uh, to something like very new media. Um, but you said that some things are exactly the same. And what are those things? I mean, so one of the reasons why I decided to pursue Shakespeare was that because I actually wanted to directly combat what you just said. <laughs> um, because I, I find Shakespeare fantastically relevant um, and fantastically yeah. interesting. Um, and I'm I'm a performer, and I've I've always sort of been like the weird theater kid, you know that kind of thing. Um, but when I sort of like looked at my skill sets and looked at the things that I was good at, I was good at two things. I was good at at uh, performing, and I was good at educating. And I wanted mm-hmm. to find a way to sort of combine those two things. Um, and so with Shakespeare, I became a teaching artist, and I was just a, an independent freelance teaching artist. And I would go around from theater to theater, from school to school, community to community, teach about Shakespeare, teach about you know. Um, theater and English and literature and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it was really fulfilling and it was really, really rewarding. Um, and then I was working at the Georgia Renaissance Festival. I was their entertainment director. So I was in charge of basically everything except turkey lakes, lawn care, and beer. All of the actors, all of the acts, all the musicians, all the costumes and all of that kind of stuff. Like, that was my job. So I was like a stage manager, but like level 9,000. Um, mm-hmm. And it was great. And I, I loved it. And then the pandemic ate my job. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, I'm good at two things. I'm good at performing and I'm good at educating. Um, and as it happened, I kind of fell into this conversation about late diagnosis, ADHD and neurodivergency and all of that stuff. Um, but for me, it's all based on that experience of performing and wanting to educate and, and educate in a way that is like relevant and, and makes things easy for people to understand and contextualizes in a way that is, um, you know, r- relevant and not archaic. Does that yeah. make sense? Ab- yeah. <laughs> yeah, that absolutely does make sense. And, you know, I was being a bit cheeky there, but... Um, <laughs> it's okay. I fr- yeah. I, it's, it's cool. We're still friends. <laughs> good, 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 good. Oh, we're friends. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, uh, but that all makes sense. And so you you already mentioned it. So you got your diagnosis what four years ago? Uh, three. three. Three years ago. ago. That yeah. is a bit late in the game. But yes. how? When looking back now, when did you first really start to go? Oh, now that's how I f- I felt. You know, you can kind of track things back. Yeah. yeah? I mean. That's a really hard question to answer, and it's and it's honestly because like the more that I've gotten educated about 
ADHD and, and depression and neurodivergency as a whole, the more that I've been able to look back and say, oh, six-year-old Katie was dealing with some of the stuff, seven-year-old Katie, you know, and like, and so I can track it through my whole life. Um, but a lot of it, the conversation sort of starts to, I think, sort of open up around when I was in high school and college um, because I was so academically gifted and because I was such a high achiever and because I was the kid who was doing every sport and every activity and burning myself out nonstop. But that was all symptomatic of my ADHD and how sort of like my hyperactivity and hyper focus was like sort of like, I don't know, like eat, the snake eating itself sort of situation. <laughs> Um, and so looking back now, I was like, okay, like that was the moment where I was like, if I think if there had been an intervention, then if I had been diagnosed, then like a lot of my life would have changed. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, I have like very specific memories of, you know, being like six years, six years old and like being like worried that, you know, my parents are going to die and like that kind of stuff. And you're like, okay, well, that's like not a thing that, that like you're supposed to be worrying about when you're <laughs> six, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you said your life would be different. Do you think it would be better? I don't think it would be better, but I think it would be very different. Mm -hmm. um, especially because, I mean, one of my sort of like foundational things about me um, is that I have dealt with an eating disorder since I was 16. Um, mm -hmm. And once I sort of understood the connection between ADHD and eating disorders, which is profound, about one in three women with ADHD experiences some kind of eating disorder or disordered eating behaviors, um, and in particular, binge eating and bulimia, and that is precisely me, um, is I have been bulimic for 17 years at this point or something like that. Um, and so knowing that, and, and I think having the opportunity to like have that information and, and know that that's something that I needed to work, like look out for, I think it would have dramatically changed the course of both like my mental health and like my physical health in conversation with that. Um, but I don't know, like it's, it's really weird when people ask me that question, because it's also the kind of thing where it's like, well you know, do you regret going to the college that you went to? And I was like, sure. maybe, but I did. And, and, you know, like the experiences that I've had are the ones that got me precisely here. And so it's like, yeah. if I had changed anything, like would I still wind up being here. And like, then it gets like really like, you know, butterfly effect, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I kind of use that question as a litmus test to be like, well, how do you feel about your own mental health? You know, because a lot of people would go, oh, no, I want to be, quote unquote, fixed sooner. And I think that's a very negative attitude to have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't like people ask me all the time. They're like, well, if you could if you could change it, mm -hmm. would you not have um, would, would you know, would you get rid of your ADHD? And mm -hmm. I'm always kind of like. I don't know how to answer that question because like my, my mental health and my experience with mental health is so dramatically like interconnected and interwoven with who I am as a person that it's like, I don't know what the experience of living without depression and ADHD is like. And so I'm like, I don't think I would, you know, like it's, it's just like, it's such like a hard conversation. Cause it's like, would you be a completely different person if given the <laughs> opportunity? And it's like, no, I like the person that I am. You know what I mean? So you started off, I assume started doing theater when you were in like high school, right? Oh no, I was like no. four. You were like four? Oh. Yeah, I was like one of the little, I was doing like the theater camps every summer and like oh, just in all like the community theater and stuff. So yeah, no, I was like really early into theater. <laughs> you, what was the first Shakespeare show you, you did? Oh my God. Um, my first, it's, oh, I usually lie because it makes for a better story. Um, <laughs> but because I'm a, I'm a writer and I give the truth scope. Um, but, uh, <laughs> 
but the first Shakespeare play, I was actually 21 the first oh. time that I ever did Shakespeare. I was I had already graduated college. I never did a, a, a Shakespeare in college or any any time before that. Um, and it was a production of Pericles, um, which is like one of the weirdest Shakespeare plays. Um, and and I played Thaisa, so I spent half the show in a box. Um, <laughs> and it was just it was a wonderful experience. It was it was and I it was with a, a local theater group, uh, like regional theater. Um, and it was just it was extraordinary. Is the pe- the people who who were working on the show were all people with day jobs, you know. Um, and I've said this before, and I will say it again, and I will die on this hill. The most gifted Shakespeare actor that I've ever met in my entire life. I've worked professionally in Shakespeare. I have two master's degrees in Shakespeare. I've worked all over the world doing Shakespeare. The most talented Shakespeare actor that I've ever encountered is a microbiologist in Davenport, Iowa. Like extraordinary people. Um, and it changed my life and it really did. And it was, it was, and, and I fell into this thing and I wasn't very good at it, which was exciting because I was accustomed to just being good at stuff immediately. But there was something about the words and there was something about the, the, the way that Shakespeare told stories that made me get really interested in it and made me want to pursue it more. So the second show that I ever did was Titus Andronicus. Mm. Uh, and I played Lavinia. Which is a weird place to start your Shakespeare journey. Like, you, you like, Thaisa de Lavinia is a very weird journey. Um, but Lavinia is what made me fall just deeply and desperately in love with Shakespeare. Like, that role, that production, that show, it changed my life. Um, and it also was one of the reasons why, why it made me want to become an educator. Because I... I blogged back in the day when people still had blogs mm-hmm. um but I blogged about it I blogged about the experience I wrote about it and um and I did a lot of research and I got really invested in the role and all of this stuff um but like I I weirdly got this like modicum of recognition as like the Lavinia girl on the internet and Lavinia's like all of these women who would who would play Lavinia from like all over the world would message me and be like hey I found your website uh, you know, I have questions about Lavinia, I have questions about the character, I have questions about the play, um, and I got more and more invested in, in Titus and more and more invested in sort of, like, learning about, like, the text and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and that is what actually led me going to grad school, because I realized that I loved it so much, I just wanted to keep learning and learning as much as possible. Um, and so then I just became one of the world's foremost experts on Titus Andronicus. Yeah. The end. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. That's fantastic um so you mentioned kind of offhanded you're you're a writer and then you mentioned the blog what do you besides the blog of lavinia uh what else have you written and how did you fall uh, into that well we actually share a, a, a common and a weird experience uh i actually used to have a humor column in the local paper <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic i was what well, i was happened um, I, oh God, it's such a silly story, but I, I won a contest. Um, the local paper had a contest, um, when I was 14 and, uh, and they were like, we're looking for a writer to have a column in the paper. Um, and we're looking for like a younger person or whatever. And so I lied about my age and I was like, and, and, and I submitted and I won. And then they found out that I had lied and they said, no, 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 you can't have, you, you don't get to win the contest for another two years. Uh-huh. So they gave the gig to this other girl for two years. And then when I turned 16, they gave me the job. And so from the time that I was 16 to the time that I was 23, I had a column in my local newspaper. Oh. It was called South of 20, uh, even though I was like 23 by the end of it. And, and I had like a humor column and I would just write about my life and my experiences and all this kind of stuff. 
Um, and so, yeah. And so that was, that was one of the, the reasons why I think I got good at writing. Like I'm a pretty mm-hmm. gifted writer. Um, and so, yeah. And, and so, yeah, I had a human column for like years. That's it's like phenomenal. my, and it's not good. Don't, please don't look it up. It's terrible. It's, Ugh. it's, oh God. I like my mom, like scrapbooked all of them and I was reading mm-hmm. back through them and I was like, Jesus, like they're so bad. <laughs> It's like, but yeah, it was, I wanted to be Dave Barry. Like that was like my goal for like oh. a really long time was I wanted to be like the female, like Irma Bombeck, like Dave Barry. And so like, yeah. The fact that you did say I grew up listening to Dave's books and ugh, that, that warms my heart so much. Yeah. I was like, that was like legit. My career path for a really long time was I wanted to be like Dave Barry to have like a, like a humor column or whatever. Um, but then I just, I, then I think like at some point I just got so burnt out on like school and academia mm-hmm. and like all of that stuff that I kind of like just got away from writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a lot of freelance work, um, when I was in college and I paid for a lot of my college by freelance writing. Um, I wrote for a, a now very defunct video game that nobody has ever heard of. It never actually launched. Um, but I, I wrote for a year and a half for this video game that never actually happened. And that was like, I was, I was really upset because like, that was going to be like my claim to fame was like, I, I wrote for this game. Um, and yeah, it's like, I don't know. Like I just, I've, I have this like secret life as an author, um, <laughs> that I always forget is like part of my history, mm-hmm. but I did a, I did a, a lot of writing and I did just get a book deal. So I suppose yeah. I, I'm back to writing. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find it difficult writing? Um, because you do have all this energy. Is it hard to sit still and just write? Honestly, no. Because okay. I think for me, writing, especially like the writing, writing that I care about deeply, mm. um, I think always has kind of like a, a, a measure of like my hyper focus. Like sure. I've, I've written a couple plays, I've written a couple of shows and like that kind of thing. Um, and I, oh, I've written them and this, you know, you sit down with the idea and then at 2 a.m. You, you're done. Like, that's how I've always kind of written is just the idea comes to me. I sit down at my computer, I write the whole thing and then it's done. Um, which is, I don't advise that. It's not <laughs> healthy to do it. I've, I've done a lot of like, you know, I didn't sleep for 48 hours so I could finish this play on time or whatever. Um, but it's, it's something where if I'm invested in the idea and I'm excited about the idea, um, it's, it's really easy for me to write. Okay. That makes sense. And going to talking a little bit about being like burnt out in the academia side of you, I feel as though people who have ADHD in particular have a reputation of being bad students. How do you feel about that? And what was it like learning that you do have this diagnosis and being as prolific as you are academically. Oh, well, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, I mean, for me, it's one of the most infuriating stigmas Mm. about ADHD because, like, you know, in the position that I am now, I get hundreds of emails and messages a day. And I would say 10% of them every single day is somebody saying, I went to the doctor and they said, well, because I was a good student when I was, you know, nine, I can't possibly have ADHD as a 35-year-old woman. Mm -hmm. And it baffles me. Because there's so many, I think, considerations that you have to you have to keep in mind um, in conversation with ADHD. Like there are different presentations, there are different ways that it manifests. Like there are different levels to ADHD. You know, like some people have it 
more or struggle with it more profoundly than others. Um, but even more than that, there's also like sort of like a sociological element and uh, and a sort of like community element um, because we live in a society, man. Um, <laughs> and for like, especially for like, uh, uh, you know, AFAB folk, uh, women, uh, the, the, the socialized expectation that women are the caregivers and women are the people who, you know, like they don't screw around in class and they're not the class clown and like all of that kind of stuff. That expectation is drilled into you at a young age. And so it's like, even if your manifestation of ADHD is hyperactive, a lot of times what we see is that that's punished out of you. And mm. that's, and that's, and that's, you know, and, and there are like repercussions to like having these things. And so a lot of women, especially, are burning themselves out and doing great in school and great academically, but their home life is falling apart and they're not able to, you know, to, to do the other half of the life thing. And that was my experience. I fucking nailed grad school. I was great at grad school. Like I was fucking amazing. Like, are you joking? But then I would go home and like, I, I couldn't, my dishes would just sit in the sink for weeks. Like I wouldn't shower. I would forget to eat like all of this different stuff. And it's, and it's because, like, it's not just a hyperactive boy in the back of the classroom. Like, there's so many different ways that it looks, so many different presentations. Um, and that's the thing that, I don't know, like, if there's one thing that I could just, you know, get on a little intercom and tell every person in the world, like, you can be a good student and have ADHD. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> when you first got your diagnosis, was it a relief? Yes, but only because I had no idea what was going on with me. Okay. Um, because my diagnosis is story is kind of interesting because I had an ovarian torsion. Um, okay. And so as a result of the ovarian torsion, they had to remove one of my ovaries. And the hormonal shift that happened after I lost my ovary was so profound that like I'd been living with undiagnosed ADHD that was livable and manageable. And like I was like, oh, I'm quirky and I'm messy or whatever. But it went from being able to function to being absolutely unable to function. Hmm. And it was terrifying because how I realized that it was an issue and why I realized it was an issue was because I was actually doing Shakespeare. I was working for a rep company um, and we were doing three shows in rep. I always forget the third one, but we were doing Twelfth Night and Tempest. And I was playing um, uh, Miranda and Mariah, which by the way, I'm not a Miranda. I don't know who fucking decided that was a good idea. I was awful. It was, I was so bad. I was like, I'm 30. Hello, daddy. Um, it was not very good. But anyway, so I had a fuckload of lines and I've always been really good at memorizing. I've always been really good at like, buck. okay, I'm like, you know, I might procrastinate a little bit, but I'll sit down and learn my lines and I'm pretty good at memorizing. I would sit for three hours, four hours at a time and I wouldn't remember anything. And like, and that was when I could find the motivation to do it. And like, I was like, I got to memorize, I got to memorize. And it got to the point where like my personal and professional reputation was absolutely on the line. And I thought I had early onset dementia like dead ass. Like I did not, I, ADHD was not even a consideration for me. I was like, I am like, I have dementia. I cannot remember anything. Like I'm going crazy. Like I don't know what's going on. And I was terrified. And so one of my friends actually, who has profound ADHD, um, he looked at me and he was like, you don't have dementia, you dipshit, you have ADHD. And I was like, no, I don't. He's like, no, but you do. 
Um, and so I went to the doctor, uh, and I and I got so lucky with my diagnosis is because my psychologist is actually a former burnt out, gifted, and talented kid with depression and ADHD. So mm-hmm. she just saw me, and she just recognized. She was like, "Yes, you. I see you. I you're valid." And just and so like my diagnosis story is like one of absolute luck and and good timing. Mm-hmm. Um, but so yes, it was a relief in that I was like, okay now I know what's going on and now I, I know how to deal with it. And also I don't have early onset dementia and I'm not <laughs> going to lose my mind by 40. You know what I mean? So like yeah. that was, it was kind of one of those like balancing act things. Yeah. Yeah. That's astonishing. So the main thing you focus on in like your, your, your tic tacs um, is the ADHD thing, but you also mentioned having depression, and anxiety, mm-hmm. um, which often come with, you know, yes. they're comorbid with ADHD. Mm-hmm. But how did you realize that was also the case, and how do you manage all three? I mean, answer the last question after you answer the first place. Because <laughs> um, well, a good I actually one. I knew that I had depression long before I knew that I had ADHD. Um, mm-hmm. I, it took me until college to get like an official diagnosis. Um, but I think like. I was so, God, this is going to sound so pretentious, but like I, I diagnosed myself at 12. Like I remember very specifically like, like worrying about everything and, and, and just like constantly being like sad and wanting to die and not understanding why I'd been like cursed to live and like, you know, all this, this stuff and angsty 12 year old Kate. Um, and so I remember I went to the library and cause I was a big library kid growing up cause I was super cool. I can't stress that enough. Um, <laughs> and so I went to the library and I, I literally found a book on depression and I read it. I just sat in the library and I read it and I went, Oh, okay. Like this makes sense. And I told, and I told my parents, my parents were like, you don't have depression. Like you're just a teenager. Like, and I was like, no, like I want to die all the time. Like I, I there's, you know, and so it took me a long time to develop the tools um, and ability to advocate for myself in terms of like communicating like how profoundly it was affecting me. Um, because the other thing is that like I never wanted to be a bother and I never wanted to be an inconvenience. And I lived in this constant fear of like being a bother and being an inconvenience and like really sitting down and like getting through your parents' head that like, no, I don't want to be alive. Like, that's very inconvenient in some ways. Um, And so because of that, like, I just, I kind of just, I knew, you know? And so I was, I was always sort of very careful, like, in those realms of, like, okay, like, now I know that I'm a teenager and I know that I have depression, so, like, I need to make sure that, like, I'm okay. And so I I developed a lot of, frankly, unhealthy coping mechanisms and a lot of unhealthy strategies Um, to deal with it but it wasn't until college when I finally had the opportunity to go like by myself and I walked in and they were like yes yes fuck yes depression holy shit are you okay and I was like no but I've fucking been managing for 10 years so it's fine you know Mm -hmm. um and so yeah so so the depression thing was not a surprise the ADHD thing I think was to the extent that I didn't realize how profoundly it had been affecting my life until I sort of had the diagnosis and I had the tools to be able to like look back and be like, Oh, all of this makes sense now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You've talked a fair amount about burnout, um, specifically in academia, but do you still find that happens now that you're free and clear of the school system? And how do you cope with that? Oh yeah. Um, I mean, it's really hard because my, 
my thing, my sort of like my fatal flaw, if you if you sure, um, is that, that I training. I know right is that I invest a lot of my self worth into productivity and and whether or not I'm like contributing. You know what I mean? Um, and so for me, it's really hard because I am now self employed, and I'm self employed as a creator. And so if I'm not creating, I am not working. And if I'm not working, I'm not making money. And if I'm not making money, then I'm not contributing. Um, and so burnout is very real. Um, and, it, and it was, it kind of came to a head um, uh, last, this, this past summer, um, because I realized that I had been posting to TikTok three times a day, every single day, for a year. I had not taken a single day off. I was working 12 hour days every single day. Um, and my life was become like, and it was in the middle of the pandemic. And so I think a lot of people sort of like went through this at the same time, but it became very like Truman show where mm. I was just waking up and I was doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over. It was like, get up, make the video, check the messages, check your emails, make another video, check the email, you know, and it got to be, it got to be pretty, pretty bad, you know, and it got to be pretty, um, pretty detrimental to my mental health. Um, and so part of learning how to be a full-time content creator and learning how to do this job effectively was learning that I have to have work hours and I have to have breaks. Um, do I always do that perfectly? Absolutely not. I think I'm down to like 10 hour days now, but that's, you know, <laughs> progress is progress. Mm -hmm. Um, but even more than that, um, I like, I'm going to be really honest. I'm pretty burned out on TikTok right now. Like, yeah, especially like with all the, the problems with the, with the app and just the platform and the way that like your views are just a constant crapshoot and you're scrapping constantly. And, and you know, they change the rules and they don't tell anybody and like all of this stuff, like all of my, my Dungeons and Dragons content has been being suppressed for like three days. And it's because I, I was, I was putting DM, I was talking about DMS in the captions. Mm. And I realized that the algorithm is, is seeing that as like, DM me or whatever yeah. and I was like no I'm talking about fucking dungeon masters but like because there's no good way for like the robots to tell the difference yeah. like my views have just been like absolute garbage and so it's just like it's so frustrating and it's exhausting to like create and create and create and create for like little to no reward um, and so yeah so like burnout is absolutely still a thing in my life <laughs> but you're moving more from TikTok to like longer form things with like YouTube and stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and how's that transition been? Difficult. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, because like the YouTube is is, I mean, I was I'm so late to the social media game. Like, mm. uh, like it's it's weird, you know. Um, but it's funny because like I I have all of these friends who like were like on Instagram like right at the right time and like YouTube at the right time. But I feel like I'm so behind that I'm, like, scrapping to catch up and learn, like, what you do and how to do it and all the cool cuts and all the different stuff. Um, and, and there's a simplicity to TikTok that you don't get with some of these other platforms because TikTok is, like, you have an idea, you throw up the phone, you yell into your phone, you post. But, like, YouTube, it's, like, okay, I need to, like, edit the video and put on a cool beginning part and a cool ending part and, like, make a whole bunch of jump cuts and, like, all of this different kind of stuff. Um, and so it's been really, it's been challenging and it's been, and it's been hard because especially like my brain is like, wants the instant reward of like, I have the idea, post the video, get a million views, hooray. Mm -hmm. And it does not work like that on YouTube. Um, but you know, it's also been kind of in the opposite direction. It's been really rewarding to, to start doing that, especially like with my podcast, 
Um, because what we realized is that there is an audience who wants like a longer conversation and who is looking for that, that longer content and wants more nuanced discussions and deeper discussions and that kind of thing. Um, and so, so yeah, sort of an offshoot of the TikTok has been the podcast and the YouTube, but then also like literally going to conventions and stuff like that and yeah. educating about neurodiversity and gaming and, and that kind of thing. And so that's been super, super cool to get to do like long form stuff, but like, let's do it as like a community. And that's been really wonderful. That sounds it. On your day to day, how are you managing the the ADHD like what have you learned and what would you like to pass on to people <laughs> I mean it's so weird because I, I talk so often about systems and making systems like I have a whole soapbox about the systems that you make need to be sustainable practical and repeatable and if they're not those three things they're not going to work mm-hmm. um, but the thing about creating a system that is sustainable practical and repeatable is that you often don't notice that it is a system until you really start breaking down your day And so I have a lot of systems that I use, um, but they're just sort of things that I fell into naturally, like just Mm. years ago, you know what I mean? Um, And so for me, like one of the big ones is is sticking to a schedule. Um, Because if I do not get out of bed at like 9.30, 10, let's be honest, 10, (laughs) I will sleep until two. Like that is just how my sleep cycle works. That is how my body works. That is how my brain works. And I spent years being like, oh, I'm such a fuck up. And then I was like, oh no, actually like 70 to 78% of people with ADHD have delayed sleep phase syndrome. I am one of those people. This is absolutely my body's natural rhythm, but I have to kind of fight against it a little bit. You know what I mean? And so like getting out of bed at the same time every day, which was really hard during the pandemic, especially during like hard lockdown when it was just like, everybody was doing like, it was awful. And I would just get out of bed. I would drag myself out of bed. But what I found was that the content creation was the thing that got me out of bed. Mm. You know, the content creation was the thing that I was excited to do. Um, And I've held on to that a lot. You know, like I wake up in the morning and I'm excited to be like, okay, what am I going to talk about today? Or like, what am I going to teach people about today? That kind of thing. Um, so I have a very specific schedule. I have a very specific structure. Um, I also have created an environment that I like to be in, which mm-hmm. is something that a lot of people don't think about. Um, but like, I actually do most of my work. I'm sitting on the chair uh, because I'm, I was feeling fancy, but like, I actually do a lot of my work on the floor because I'm just more comfortable sitting on the floor. Um, it's terrible for your back, but it's better for my brain. So <laughs> we make sacrifices. <laughs> How do you feel about the switch over from the pandemic stopping live performance and going into this other thing that you're doing now because they're very different mediums, obviously. Yeah. I mean, I have two answers, and one is very political and one is not. Ooh, Um, both. But I mean, like, for me, being in front of people, like, in a room with people has always been the thing that, like, you know, makes my soul sing or whatever. Um, and it was, it was funny because yesterday I did a TikTok live and somebody asked me, they're like, how are you so comfortable talking? There was like 150 people on this live or whatever. And I was like, okay. And they're like, how are you so comfortable talking to all these people? And I was like, because I spent the last 10 years going into high schools at eight o'clock in the morning and teaching an auditorium full of angry teenagers about Romeo and Juliet. Like I yeah. am... I am one of those people who just like, I will, I don't even have to be prepared. Like, Oh fuck, you need a Shakespeare workshop. Cool. I'll just walk out on stage and we'll wing it. Let's do it live. 
And like, that's my skill set. Like my skill set is talking to people, being in front of people. And I'm, and I'm good at it. And I know that I'm good at it. Um, and so getting back to that has been really good because it's, it's, it's nice. And, and also just from the, the purely just human element of like, my friends are getting their jobs back because mm. every person I know is a performer or a circus performer, or a run fair performer, or a magician or whatever. And it's like, they all lost their job. And so it's like, now I know that my friends are getting back into work and like that kind of thing. And so that just makes me happy. Um, but the political answer I have is that I'm furious. I'm furious with the fact that performers are having to choose between making a living or not making a living because like nobody can decide what the right thing to do is. You know, it's like if I go to the convention, half of my followers are excited because I'm going to the convention and the other half are angry that I'm going to the convention at all because it's a pandemic and you should be staying home. And it's like, I try, I, I would never actively do anything that would, that would cause harm. And I, I believe so deeply in in acting kindly and compassionately and whatever but it's like i'm i'm angry i'm angry that it, that the the burden of choice and the burden of making a living or not making a living is being put on the individual rather than having any kind of leadership say okay like we're all on board with this this is all okay and it's hurting the industry it's hurting the industry it's hurting it's it's crumbling small small theaters and, and small small you know organizations because it's like you know if you require vaccine you know proof or whatever then like half your half your subscriber base freaks the fuck out if you require masks the subscribe you know like and it's just it's awful and it's unfair it is unfair to the people who are working in the arts and working in the, in these organizations to have to be the people to police it it's not fair it's not fair to them and like that's the thing that i'm most angry about because it's like I'm I'm tired of seeing my friends' companies fail because, you know, they have to make that choice, and it's it's, it's just, I get real heated up about it. So, do you think that the reason you like talking in front of people and you clearly have a, as you said, a very good skill set for it, is to counteract not wanting to be an inconvenience? Like this is, you're by speaking in front of people, you're being disruptive. You know, um, I don't. I don't think so. I think no. that I think my my love of performing, because the type of performing that I do is is pretty much wholesale educational. I think I even think of Shakespeare kind of as an educational pursuit in some ways, um, because even if I'm not directly like you know, even if I'm not teaching a workshop about Twelfth Night, I'm still performing in Twelfth Night, mm -hmm. um, and I always I always say that. When I was a kid, there was there's this theater troupe that I promise the story is going somewhere by the way, um, but there's this there's this theater troupe in that came to my school, and I was captivated and like looking back it was just like a little small touring company who came and did like a little puppet show or whatever, but I was fucking captivated, and I remember looking around and looking around at like all my friends and stuff in school and like whatever this big school auditorium, and I was like clearly the only person who cared i was i was clearly the only one who was as invested and i didn't understand i didn't understand why nobody cared about this magic that was happening in front of me um and now the sort of roles are reversed and i'm the person who gets up on stage but i can spot that kid 
Mm-hmm. I, I always look for that kid. I don't care about the, the 300 other kids who are, you know, messing around in, in the front. I look for that one kid in the back who starts here and, you know, ends up here. Mm-hmm. That's who I do it for. And so in doing Shakespeare and doing things like that, like, I want to prove to that kid that Shakespeare isn't archaic and Shakespeare is worth it. And Shakespeare can fucking change your life if you see the right production like it did mine. Um, and so the reason why I love educating and the reason why I love, I, I love being in front of people and doing that is not because I'm worried about being an inconvenience, but it's because I have, I have this passion and I, I have this, this deep sort of like need to, to share that with somebody. Um, and if I can, like, I think it's the opposite of being an inconvenience. It's like, I find it to be the, the, the most convenient thing is I have this thing and I want to teach you and I want to share it with you. And I want you to be as excited and passionate as I am about it. That's why I do it. Mm-hmm. Well, good to know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now you, you mentioned kind of having to convince your folks that you are actually depressed do you you find a cultural pushback overall about having to deal with both depression and ADHD specifically as someone you know as a woman oh yeah definitely I mean I I get hate mail every day. Oh, my God. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Like, you're faking. You're a liar. You're a shill for Big Pharma. And I was like, listen, if I was a shill for Big Pharma, I would remember to take my meds. Calm down. Um, (laughs) But, like, it's a... But, yeah, I mean, I get get a lot of pushback. Um, And especially because sort of my, my chosen thing in education is is I'm really passionate about sexual education and neurodivergency and conversation with sex. Um, and so because I've kind of gone that way, like not only am I a woman talking about mental illness, but I'm also a person talking about sex on the internet, which that a lot of people don't like that. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, I, I get a lot of pushback and I, I get a lot of, you know, like, oh, well, you're not really ADHD or you're not ADHD enough. Or if you really had depression, I get, I get a lot of, you're too pretty to have depression. I get that weirdly a lot. Like mm-hmm. you, like somebody once told me that my, like my hair is too nice to have depression and if I really had depression I wouldn't have nice hair and I was like cool thank you for your feedback I'll take that into consideration the next time that I'm weeping on my kitchen floor at four o'clock in the morning I must be faking um but yeah I mean I think I think anybody I think it's such a common experience to have your your diagnosis or your experience invalidated whether you know no matter what gender you are Mm -hmm. um also you know I think especially like being kind of a public figure which is still super weird for me um you know I, I I do open myself up to a lot of criticism and a lot of critique um and it's and it's fascinating to me the way that like I'll say I have depression and people on the internet will just be like no you don't and I'm like well, okay thank you oh great I'm cured thank you <laughs> and how do you manage that negative feedback you know, it used to upset me a lot more. It really did. It yeah. used to it used to just fucking destroy me. Um, but one of the things that I realized that especially in conversation with rejection sensitive dysphoria is like 
if I wanted to keep creating, I had to learn how to sort of compartmentalize it. Um, because I'm absolutely the person, I've always been the actor who it's like, you know, you get 10,000 glowing reviews, but the one reviewer doesn't like how your hair is. And that's all you can think of for the rest of your life. It's like, whoa, well, that one bad review. And, and so like negative comments like that would fucking destroy me for days, you know? But then I was like, it's one person. It's, mm-hmm. it's one person. And it's like, and, and what really helped me the most was like, you, you TikTok, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Tell me in order every single video that you watched yesterday. I know. Yeah, exactly. You I know. can't do it. I have no idea. And, <laughs> and so what I realized was like the way that people use social media is, is, mm. is often like you're scrolling through, you say a shitty thing. And then because you feel a moment of power, you feel a moment of, of satisfaction. Ha ha. I sure showed her. And then you <laughs> scroll to the next 17, 18 videos and you don't even think about that video. You don't even think about that person, you know? And so yeah. it's like, I'm going to give you precisely as much consideration as you have given me. I will read the comment. I'll go, ah, you're a dick. And then I will move on with my day. Um, you know, and for like the, the really, the really bad ones, like the, you know, the stalkers and the people mm. who send me rape, I get a lot of rape threats. That's a oh. whole thing in my life. Um, but like for those people, you know, you just block them because it's yeah. like, and I, and I try to approach it with compassion because it's like anybody who, sends rape threats or or just you know diatribes about what a terrible person i'm like you are clearly going through something like you are clearly in a place where like you have profound needs that are not being met and so like the most compassionate thing to do is to just block you and and hope and wish you the best along the way because it's just not not worth the time yeah you mentioned earlier the eating disorder thing Mm-hmm. And how did you recover from that? And how did you first acknowledge that? Um, I mean, I was actually my, oh God, this is such a long answer. But like my relationship with my eating disorder is really interesting. Um, because I, I'm very good at car- compartmentalizing. Mm-hmm. Like very good, probably like unhealthily so. And so when I realized at some point, I went from like, you know, ca- like casually sort of like binge purging to like, now I'm doing this every day. Mm. I remember that I had this moment where I was like, you have a problem. And like, we, we know that we have a problem, but there is too much life to live for this to be the thing that defines you. And so I kind of put it in a box. And so I, I was actively bulimic for years, but I, but nobody knew nobody, nobody had any idea. And it really didn't impact my life that much because I was like, I want to do these things. I want to want to have these experiences. I want to be an actor. I want to do all of this stuff. And I, I don't have the time and emotional energy to spend on worrying about being bulimic. And so I just kind of put it in a box at some point it got bad enough to where I needed medical intervention and medical help. And that was the point where I was like, okay, I need to learn like actual coping strategies. I need to learn actual healthy ways of like navigating this. Um, And so I did that. I went to therapy. I did the the workshops and the classes and all of that kind of stuff. Um, But the, but the real truth, especially with binge eating in and bulimia and conversation with ADHD is like, it's not really something that you recover from. You can, you can not be engaging in those activities, but in some ways, you know, the, the parallel that always gets drawn and it kind of makes me uncomfortable, but it's like being an alcoholic, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, but the problem is you can stop drinking and it's not going to dramatically impact your life, but you can't stop eating. You got, yeah. you got to do that. 
Um, and so finding, you know, strategies to stay actively in recovery and actively not engaging in those, you know, bad practices, harmful practices, it can be really hard. It can be really challenging. Um, but it's kind of that the, the decision of like, do I eat the cake and then feel terrible about myself because I know what's going to happen after I eat the cake? Um, or do I say, no, okay, the healthier choice to make would be to have a, a different snack or eat the cake and enjoy it and give yourself permission to enjoy the cake and just guilt-free cake. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you mentioned earlier, I've said that so many times. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> um, mentioned earlier talking about the relationship between ADHD and sex. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear some of your thoughts about that. Go uh, off, as the youths say. Yeah, go off. Uh, uh, I'm not cool enough to say go off. It's like a, a shook. I, I just know. learned shook. That was, that was good. I'm shook. Um, I don't know. You went to the library as a kid. You're pretty cool. Pretty cool. Yeah. My sister is like 11 years younger than me, so she always teaches me like the cool kid talk, and I'm always uh. just like, sweet. Um, I still say rad. Like That's how like sure. not cool I am. Um, but I like rad. It's got like a yeah. ring to it. You're like, rad. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, I mean, ADHD is profoundly impactful of sexual health and sexual wellness. Um, about 38% of men and 40% of women with ADHD uh, experience some kind of sexual dysfunction. For many people, it is a lack of arousal, a uh, struggle to orgasm, struggle um, to just sort of like get aroused in the moment. Um, a lot of people with ADHD also struggle with conditional arousal, um, which is something that is really like, if you don't know the difference, like, oh boy, buckle in. Um, because for a lot of people and women, especially conditional arousal basically means that like, if you are worried about the dishes, if you are worried about the laundry, if you are worried about, you know, who's babysitting the kids, it can be really hard to get in the mood. Mm -hmm. And so when you also introduce ADHD into the mix, where you already have a hard time focusing, you can already have a really hard time getting in the moment and staying in the moment, um, where things can very quickly become dull and repetitive and yes, I am talking about sex itself, um, it can be really, really challenging to have a fulfilling sex life um, because sex can be very boring. And talking about sex, boring sex, is, is hard because there's this idea in society that like if you are you know, with a partner or whatever and you love them and whatever, like sex every time should be the best thing ever and you're going to come together and it's going to be spectacular and fucking birds are going to fly around and you know, you fade to black and it'll be amazing. And it's like, that's not how it works in the real world. Like it's, it's just not. Um, and especially then when you start uh, having conversations about like just like arousal and how arousal happens and the length of time it takes to actually get aroused and, and all of these different things. Like there's a huge, huge gap in our understanding of sexuality as it relates to ADHD because we're not having the embarrassing conversations. We're not talking about boring sex. We're not talking about being, you know, having somebody inside you and going, did I do the laundry? Like that's <laughs> stuff that happens, yeah. but it's like, there's so much shame and there's so much guilt about it. And it's like, why? Like, this is such a common experience. And it was hilarious. Cause like the first time I did a video about boring sex, it fucking blew up so hard. I was like, Oh my God. And like, you know, sure enough, somebody was like, well, how does your husband, what does your husband think about yeah. you talking about having boring sex? I was like, first I didn't say I was having boring sex with my husband cause hashtag Polly. <laughs> uh, but also that's something that we talk about and we, yeah. and we navigate, we communicate together. Um, and so I think 
honestly, secretly, my, my secret diabolical plan is that I'm not an ADHD educator and I'm not a sex educator and I'm not a Shakespeare educator. What I actually am is somebody who is just trying to get people to learn how to communicate with each other mm. uh, by whatever means necessary because there's a profound lack of communication out there in the world right now. So, Yeah. That's beautiful. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> What would your biggest piece of advice for someone who has received a late diagnosis of any kind, but specifically of ADHD, be? Uh, I get at, you know, I get asked this question all the time, and I still don't have a good answer for it. So here is today's passable answer <laughs> based on what happened to me this morning. Um, the thing that you have to remember about getting a late diagnosis, and I talked about this today actually, is that it doesn't fundamentally change who you are as a person. Mm. You are still the same person with your faults, your failings, your successes, your passions, whatever. You are still you. All they have handed you in this moment is a tool. Uh, quite like boringly a tool that helps you Google the right terms, you know, uh, but it's also a tool that is gonna give you access to the care that you need in order to be sort of like the best and most fulfilled version of yourself. But it also means that you now have a profound opportunity to forgive yourself and to learn about yourself, but learn about yourself with a fundamental, crucial building block of your entire being suddenly filled in, whether that be ADHD or autism or depression or anxiety or PTSD or all of them, because there are people living with all of those. It's, it's a new way to understand yourself. And you don't have to change who you are as a person. You don't have to stop liking Shakespeare. You don't have to stop liking Star Wars. You can, you can still be that person. But what a diagnosis gives you is the opportunity to accept yourself wholly for who you are. And to understand that sometimes the struggles that you've been having and the, and the issues that you've been dealing with are your fault. They aren't because you're lazy. They aren't because you're not trying hard enough. They're not because you're secretly not attracted to your husband. It's because you have ADHD and it's a part of it. And so learning to accept that and learning to forgive yourself and stop punishing yourself for when you can't do stuff. Like that is, that is one of the most powerful things I think the newly diagnosed can do is just forgive yourself and go forward from here with a more fully realized understanding of who you are. Yeah, that's passable. <laughs> no, that was really wonderful. I teared up. You're, you're good. I, so remember exactly what you said and say it every time everyone yeah. asks. I'm just going to clip this and play this. I'll just be like, wait, hold on. I have a button yeah. for this. It's a system. It's practical, sustainable, and repeatable. I love Absolutely. it. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, but I want to thank you very much for coming on the program and talking. It's been an absolute delight talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. This was amazing. I really appreciate being here. 